in standing for our scripture lesson this morning in Galatians, sermon on Galatians 4, 3 through 5. We're reading Galatians 1 through 7. It's coming off Paul just telling uh, the Galatians that they are Abraham's offspring if they are Christ's. This passage connects us to all of human history and all of eternity forward and pivots in Jesus. So receive these words in faith. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We're taking a one-week break from Second Corinthians. Lord willing, we'll be back in it next week. But on this Christmas Sunday before Christmas, I should say, we're looking at a wonderful Advent-related Pauline text of New Testament Scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, fill us with Christ, the Spirit. Transform us by the Word of God written, the Word of God preached, and the Word of God incarnate who came into this world, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. We thank you in his name. Amen. Have we ever thanked God that Mary was the sinner, Mary the mother of Jesus? Recently reading St. Anselm's great work, Curd Deo Homo, Why did God become man? I was stunned to see that the great 12th century, 11th, 12th century saint affirmed the fact that Mary was a fallen sinner. I don't know if he'd be in trouble with the Pope police these days for that or not. He also affirmed the fact that Mary was a redeemed fallen sinner. In other words, a saved one, one who is in covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ, her own son, who she was bringing into the world. Because no one is ever saved except through grace, through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ alone. That's how God has saved anyone since the fall. So if anyone's to be saved, it's in this great covenant. And so, have you ever thanked God that Mary was a sinner? Because if Mary hadn't been a sinner, Jesus could not be the substitutionary representative redeemer of his elect church. Now, Jesus Christ did not have Adam as his federal head, as all of us did who are, if we're in Christ today, we don't have Adam as our federal head anymore. Jesus is our federal head. But we were all conceived in Adam, so Adam was our federal head. Jesus was never conceived in Adam. God the Father was his federal head, and still is. So, Jesus Christ is born of a sinful woman, and yet has no sin nature and no sin at all and yet would be subjected to all the trials and tribulations and effects and consequences of sin as he is the sin bearer for the elect church, bearing it all on the cross for us. 
Now Jesus did, however, possess a body that was very much like ours, given to illness, sickness, disease, trial, temptation, getting cut, bruised, battered. He had a body like ours, a body that yet was not sinful in itself, would relate perfectly to ours, its frailnesses, illnesses, trials, and temptations. Now this text in Galatians, especially at verse 4, where Christ is said to be born under the law, confirms all of this for us. If Jesus hadn't been born under the law, he could not bear that law that had to be born in the first covenant, the covenant of works, the creation that Adam broke. That, that covenant had to be kept. And Jesus Christ is the one that kept it for us. And he, in order to do that, he had to be born under the law. And all this confirms this rather remarkable and eye-opening theology. So in this special Christmas season of God admiration, let us on this Lord's Day morning make it our gospel goal to wonder at Christ's incarnation and its amazing ramifications, looking together at Galatians 4, 3 through 5. If you're new and you wish to use an outline we provided, we start here. title of the sermon is The Christmas Miracle, The Doctrine, The incarnation of Jesus Christ involved dramatic circumstances. Now, we already talked about some of that. For God to become a man and the second person of the Holy Trinity is a huge, significant fact. And we read the Chalcedonian Creed this morning, which kept driving that point home. He's God. He's man. It's not two persons. It's one. United. Hypostatic union. The the Son of God. The second person becoming united to a human being forever now, God and man. This is significant, but there's even more. Let's see, the incarnation of Jesus Christ involved dramatic circumstances like his inheriting our fallen situations and bodies yet without sin. Now Jesus Christ, I should say, if we want to speak more properly, and you know, we Reformed, we Puritan, we... Presbyterian types like to be precise, right? So we ought to say it this way. Christ did not come here to earth in his incarnation and birth as some kind of a superman who would be immune to the fallen world's curses and troubles, illnesses and trials. And sometimes you hear about the Shroud of Turin, right? You can pretty much dismiss it just because it's perfectly symmetrical. Christ didn't come here in that sort of form. Instead, he arrived on our earth as a baby, just like you and I did, except that he had no sin and no sin nature. But Christ's lack of a sin nature did not mean in any respect that he was immune from or exempt from the consequences of sin, including temptation. And this is one of the reasons he had to be born under the law. He had to withstand the temptations that our first federal head did not do. And he did. He withheld from all sin, even though he was subjected to tremendous temptation. And being perfect made the temptations more difficult, not less. These were extremely intense temptations. Born under the law. The law was given to amplify the horribleness of sin, Romans 5.20. And the Messiah had to bear that law for us us sinners who could never accomplish it on our own. 
We forfeited any possibility of that when our first federal head, the one representing all of us, Adam, fell into sin. Again, Jesus' body was not some perfectly symmetrical heavenly anatomy that was incapable of slipping, falling, getting sick, hurt, or cut, bruised, or battered. Rather, Christ's body was just like ours, born under the law, which meant that it was subject to every evil that our frames are. And all of us know what that's about, right? And it's tough. And Jesus Christ endured it with us and for us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ involved dramatic circumstances like his inheriting our fallen situations and bodies yet without sin, and like his being required to perfectly keep the whole law in order to be our Savior. So once sin entered the world, the human world, of course sin first started in heaven when Lucifer fell, but when it entered our realm down here, someone who would be uniquely qualified to substitute for others some very special being, indeed a God-man, would absolutely, positively have to, with 100% accuracy and without any failure whatsoever, keep all the law in every way if any human sinner was going to be saved. And this Jesus Christ did. Can we imagine how difficult that would be in a fallen universe? The whole universe of sin was arrayed against him. Satan and his horde. All the religious leaders of the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, every sinner, fallen in Adam, arrayed against Christ, hating him, seeking to kill him, just like they treat his bride, the body of Christ, the true church today. So all this is arrayed against him, and yet he withstood it. If Christ had failed at even one point along the way, he would have been disqualified as the Redeemer and Savior of sinners. The the law of God was, in at least one sense, a burden for Jesus, just like it always has been for us sinners. Even though it perfectly exemplified the character of God, and the law was good. And he, Christ, was the only one who would have had a legitimate right to be excused from the law. Because he was the only one that never sinned. So he was not under the condemnation of the law. His keeping the law, his perfectly fulfilling it, as the God-man, gave him the right and privilege, honor, and even obligation to dispense that beautiful blessing upon the elect of God who would make up the church of God, in every era, who would be the recipients of this atonement bought for them by another, an alien righteousness imputed to them. Not their own doing, but his doing given to sinners who could never save themselves. Our Savior's incarnation mandated that he be born under that law and fully keep it and accomplish it. So I mentioned our first federal head, Adam, failed to do that. If he had succeeded at that and lived out his probationary period, he could have eaten of the tree of life and entered some kind of glorious heavenly realm with all his posterity and train, but he didn't. Rather, we get something better than that. 
We get the righteousness not of an original Adam, but the righteousness of the great last Adam, Jesus Christ himself, whose blood was shed for us, lifting us above the angels and into the very realms of heaven. The perfect new federal head Jesus succeeded, and he did it in a substitutionary way, representing his people and giving his church the benefits of his atonement. Let's look at these amazing verses 3 through 5. I had, we had Elder Craig read the larger context, and that was good because it gave you more perspective. Looking together, Galatians 4, and considering how the incarnational Christmas miracle blesses us, God's church. We saw what Jesus had to do. How does that positively affect us? How, how is this fleshed out for us? I think these verses give us some good detail. How the incarnational Christmas miracle blesses us. First, Jesus finds us trapped by religious law. Verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Once Adam sinned, we were all prisoners, chained up. It's like Marley. Anybody watch the Christmas Carol? The Christmas Carol. Dragging his chains around. That's what all of us in our sins are doing. Sinners who think they're free are just crafting more chains around their necks and bodies and souls. We are trapped by religious law. Now, the elementary principles of the world that Paul refers to here are all those mores, habits, societal peer pressure, the world's insistences, all of its determined standards of behavior. These sorts of things are the laws and mores of religious law because everyone is inherently religious. There are no atheists. No one's that stupid. Everyone knows there is a God and that there's a judgment day. Everyone has a religion. Everyone worships at an altar. The only question is, is it the true God or the myriad of false ones? And all of us in our fallenness are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, despite the fact that some proud people think they're exempt from that, which only proves that they're more enslaved to it than they realize. So everyone, whether they're overtly religious or professedly non-religious, live and are governed by these elementary principles of the world. So what's intriguing about Jesus' incarnation, among many other things, is that he comes right into that jail cell with us. He enters into this world where everybody is a slave to the elementary principles of the world. The laws of men, the laws of religion, the laws and mores, the supposed self-righteousness that we are told we may attain to, or the world standards of righteousness. He walks into that jail cell with us and not only frees us, but he does so to connect with us there in prison, voluntarily binding himself to our fallen estate of sin, though himself never succumbing to sin, through his faithfulness to his Father, through the ordinary means of grace, reliance upon prayer, the sacraments, the preached word, 
the very things that we do. Jesus Christ has used the same things that we are given in the church today, the faithful church. And he was faithful in it, never succumbing, but he, he came right into our world. Lord Jesus never sinned, but he certainly experienced sin aplenty more than we ever would. Today, because we among the elect church are in a checkered existence, because, yes, we have a new federal head, Jesus Christ, we have a new life, we're new creatures. Nonetheless, while we were here on the earth in the church militant, we're yet encumbered with the old effects of the old man, which are being crucified and done away with Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Every Sunday, you are a little bit closer to Jesus, more conformed to his image. And yet, we still struggle, even with the elementary principles of the world. We're always tempted to go back to them. This week, you and I will be. Now, some people in their foolishness and wantonness much like what the Galatian church went through for a time, if you know the history of the book of Galatians, actually desire to return to the elementary principles of the world. Oh, Christ isn't good enough. We need to add something, some religious law. Let's return to the elementary principles of the world through the law. But all the truly redeemed in the body of Christ will never do that because they have already transcended the elementary principles of the law through the one who has kept that law perfectly for them and their faith in Jesus and his gospel of grace has placed them in a higher and beautiful place that they would never wish to enter into the dung heap of sin and law and principles like that. Again, Christ is our only means by which any of us in any way actually keep any of God's law. And if we do so, it's a love ancillary of genuine saving faith. And it's never perfectly unalloyed with sin. And yet God does accept it as perfectly righteous and a holy offering of praise to him as his church. Jesus finds us trapped by religious law. Verse 4, Jesus joins himself to our desperate condition. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Really, Galatians 4.4 4 is one of those stupendously remarkable texts. Sometimes when we think of, of Christmas, Luke 2 comes to mind, Matthew 1, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 14, other places like that. But how about right here, Galatians 4.4? 4? God sent forth his Son in the fullness of time, at the exact perfect moment. Notice that God breaks into our time-space continuum. The eternal deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who of necessity, in his essence, must live and dwell outside the space-time continuum intrudes himself into it in Christ's incarnation, comes right into it, even though no one wanted him to come. There wasn't one sinner in the universe that wanted this Messiah to come here. No one. Not just the innkeepers who didn't have room. No one wanted him to come. And we didn't either in our sin. The last thing the world we want is the light of the world coming in and exposing all our sin and darkness all our secrets, all our shame and disgrace, right? 
And the light of the world comes in and lights everything up. But it was the best thing that could possibly happen. In a dramatic and personal way, he comes to us. You realize that the incarnation of Christ is God's great and final infiltration of himself into his created realm. But once that happened, it's all over at that point. As we prayed this morning, the gospel, the church, the kingdom of God grew from that tiny little seed as per the parable of the mustard seed into this great plant and tree that's grown all the way to Peoria County, Illinois. Can you believe it? And other places like Africa and Antarctica and South America and Asia and every other place on the globe. And do notice, dear saints, even as Bible-believing Christians, that though the Incarnation would prove to be salvific only for the elect of Christ's church, nonetheless, Jesus' arrival really was a gift for the whole world, the whole fallen world, all of it, including everyone and everything that's arrayed against him. And don't forget, there's... We don't know who God's people are out there. As we go and rub shoulders with them this week, we don't know who his elect are. And he will use us to draw them to himself. The words of the angels on Bethlehem's night plain still ring so relevantly true as they're found in Luke 10 and 2, 10 and 11, quoting, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus finds us trapped by religious law, joins himself to our desperate condition, and finally, Jesus liberates us by his free grace found in himself, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, We're we're enslaved, we're in darkness, we're in death, hell, condemnation, wrath of God. And Jesus Christ applies by the power of the Holy Spirit his atonement to us and liberates us, frees us, makes us adopted sons and daughters of God, the family of God, the church of God, the kingdom of God. And a great application, an example of this grace is this freedom from the slavery that to this day has the vast majority of people in chains. And what kind of slavery is that? It's not the typical slavery people think of, but it's a slavery, a bondage to some form of law, some elementary principle, as per verse 3. And why are souls in such a sad and miserable condition? Because they're not, at least yet, children of God. They're children of Adam, of this world, of Satan, of sin, of death, of darkness, of hell, of shame, of disgrace. But it doesn't have to be that way. In a state of unregeneracy, we were that way too. All sinners are desperately lost and enslaved souls. And outside of Jesus Christ, there's no hope 
for life, forgiveness, happiness, fulfillment, let alone heaven, or any other good thing that God has for us in Jesus. It's our privilege to preach this supernatural gospel, and as we hear it, and take it from church to live it, and speak it to others, give them the same good news that we have received even here in the house of the Lord, house of prayer for all the nations, this loving gospel grace coming from humble, sincere, fruitful, compassionate members of the genuine elect church of Christ. But alas, like the Galatians of old, all of us, including misguided religious people in Galatia, and even today, are enamored with law and not gospel mercy. An interesting fact is that as sinners fallen in Adam, we all understand law. Everyone does. Now, people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? Try to separate it from them, their hearts, push it away from them, but they still understand. But you know what people don't understand? You know what's not inherently innately known is gospel. Gospel has to be announced, gospel has to be preached, gospel has to be proclaimed. Oh, yes, we all know law. Sin, hell, damnation, condemnation, judgment of God. We all know that. No exceptions. No one's too stupid not to know that. But no one knows gospel. It's too heavenly. It's too supernatural. It's too miraculous. No one knows it. This is a message from the king of heaven to earth. And that's what you're hearing right now. And that's what you give to poor sinners in their bonds, in compassion, in grace. So, in a certain sense, dears, even before we enter the application section, let's ask this question. Where do we stand today? With Jesus under his imputed righteousness, this miraculous gospel? of grace and forgiveness or with the world hoping to make it to heaven by some code of conduct. Let's do a little more of the aforementioned application and learn what the Christmas miracle means for us in the true church today. Why would Jesus do all this for us? What kind of difference does it make in the covenant community? Let's explore what the Christmas miracle means for us in the true church today. First, that we please God through faith in Jesus and not by trying to earn his favor. Had that not really been the whole point of the book, the epistle of Galatians? The Galatians had been infected by the Judaizers who said, oh yes, Christ, yes, even Jesus, but you must have circumcision, the law. The old Sabbath, which was abrogated. We have a Sabbath in the New World. It's called Sunday. They were taking these Gentile Galatians to the elementary principles of the law, of the world, back to the dung heap of death and sin. 
If God had wanted to save anyone by law, the only way we could theologically properly construe that would be, okay, Adam before the fall. If he had kept the law perfectly. But after the fall, there is no salvation by law. None. Zero. No one saved by law. Not Moses. Not anyone. All of them, including Mary, the Virgin Mother of Christ, was saved by grace through faith in Christ. And indeed, we do believe she was. Even before the Annunciation, where the angel told her that she would bear the Christ child. Beside, to speak humanly, what sense would it be for a loving Heavenly Father to send not some angel but his own beloved Son, the eternally begotten second person of the Holy Trinity, Son of God to earth, and go through all of that if anyone could be saved by the elementary principles of the world or by law. Someone might ask, well, how do I benefit from the Incarnation? And the answer is, by apprehending the person of the Incarnation, Jesus Christ, by faith. This will be a miracle. It will evidence a miracle of God's work, if it's genuine. But there's no other way. And after doing such an astounding thing as sending his own son to this earth, God will accept no substitutes. There's no other way. What the Christmas miracle means for us in the true church today, that we please God through faith in Jesus and not by trying to earn his favor, and that we practice our Christian faith by grace and not by the law. Now, of course, the law has a subordinate place, third use, Calvin's third use of the law. It's a guide for sanctification, but even there, it's directing us back to Christ. Doing this, practicing the Christian faith by grace and not by the law, is impossible, humanly. Not only difficult, it's impossible. It's as hard as somebody keeping their covenant vows in a faithful church. That's impossible. It can be done, but it's only done because that person is regenerate. A new creature has the real goods, has the integrity, not in himself or herself, but imputed to that person by God. Jesus Christ's righteousness. It's so much easier to do the flesh, the world, the law thing, the ascetic thing, be a monk, a hermit, starve yourself to death, beat yourself up, keep fasts all the time, do extra special things. That's the easy way. It's not acceptable. It doesn't work. The hard way is to walk by grace, to bear your cross, to be crucified with Jesus Christ, and to be risen with him, and to enjoy that Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Our constant, most troubling temptation is to resort to works, law, principles of the world, the elementary principles, the world's way, the mores, the expectations, the peer pressures. That's the easy way. And the vast majority of the world is swept apart on a way by it. 
What will we, the Church of Christ, do today and throughout the rest of our lives? Will we trust in Jesus' blood, atonement for the forgiveness of our sins? Will we believe that our life is in his resurrection? We're raised with him and seated with him at the Father's right hand. That is our life. Will we walk by grace and love through faith in Christ? Or will we be like just everyone else? What kind of church do we want to be? Faithful and special? Or just regular and ordinary? Like everybody else in the world, just trying to put on a smiley face, a false happy look, the way of the world, in bondage under the elementary principles of it. Dears, it's all about Christ. We're celebrating Him. Let us stay connected to Jesus by grace through faith, in humble reliance and true love. Beloved, the Christmas miracle is incarnational and it is transformational. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Christmas miracle that Paul uh, elucidates here in Galatians 4 so beautifully for us. Thank you that this miracle is profound and magnificent, glorious and wonderful, and even many in the world are taking note of it in this season. We rejoice at that. We pray that you would harvest your, your people in these days into your church. And we thank you that Jesus Christ is the King and Lord and Sovereign. All things are under your perfect control. We rest secure in you. And we bless you through the Messiah who has come. In Christ's name, amen.